Hello, loyal listener, and welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. We have, in past episodes, explored some of the sensations of being alive in Byzantium, always more interesting than you'd think. In the uh, last episode, I talked with Betsy Williams about some of the sensations of jewelry and textiles and just the body interacting with material objects. And way back in episode eight, we talked with uh, Bissar Pencheva about some of the sounds that one might hear, especially in Hagia Sophia. Well, today's episode is more related to that one in that we're going to be talking about the experience of sound and some of the soundscapes of Byzantine life, and in particular, Byzantine music. Now, music and song are among the most deliberate sounds that people make. In fact, there are whole disciplines and sciences around them. It's a very technical skill. Or it can be, <laughs> in the best cases. Now, there's always an element of imaginative reconstruction whenever we try to understand the sights and sounds and smells of Byzantine life. A lot of it is fairly straightforward to imagine. We more or less know what Byzantine Greek sounded like, but that's where our knowledge really gives out, in the sense that beyond speech, if we get into the realm of performance, we are kind of in the dark. Now, what do I mean? So we have... Lots and lots and lots of literary texts from Byzantium, and we know that many of them were performed. They were recited or delivered before an audience in some way. And there's reason to think that those performances were very artistic, deliberate, crafted, the product of skill, but all we have are the words on the page. And it is very difficult to make the leap from the words that we see, the texts that we read and translate, to what the whole performance might have sounded like, and was there more involved in the delivery of a text orally than just reading out the words on the page in the (laughs) boring and dull, flat way that academics sometimes read papers at conferences. Clearly there was more involved, but we just don't know what it was. What did these texts sound like? And beyond the text itself, What did the whole experience feel like? Uh, If you imagine the performance of an imperial oration at the court, are people stone silent, or are they coughing or clapping or occasionally jeering or booing in the back? Is is there rustling? How many people are there? What's the total soundscape? It's so hard to picture. We sometimes have these tantalizing references, um, like to a poem for the death of the Emperor Leo VI, We have a manuscript which says that the poem is to be performed in the second plagal mode and sung to the tune of the ruler of the world, which must have been some song that everybody was familiar with. We know that acclamations were chanted in the Hippodrome, at the court, in Hagia Sophia, and we have the the script, you know, the, the libretto, but we don't know what it would have sounded like when it says... Repeat 20 times. (laughs) When I was a student, I thought, why are they just standing there repeating this 20 times? What what does that sound like? Well, let me give you an example. So we actually have an acclamation, an imperial acclamation, with musical notation. And I'm going to give you an example. The verse that is being chanted is, Porlata etiton vasileon, or many years for the emperors or kings. And here's what it would have sounded like. Now that is from the 15th century. Um, In earlier centuries, certainly, there would likely have been musical accompaniment, possibly an organ because those were used in the court and in the Hippodrome, not in Byzantine churches, but in the court and the Hippodrome. Would the audience have been quiet or cheering, clapping, air horns? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here, and there is nobody better in the world to help us understand this than Alexander Lingus, who is the founder and director 
of Capella Romana, the ensemble that performed the piece that you heard. Capella Romana has made many recordings of Byzantine, um, medieval Slavic, and medieval Western music. I strongly recommend that you check them out. I've used their recordings in class to illustrate many aspects of Byzantine civilization. Alexander Lingus is also a professor of music at City University of London and has written, among many other things, on the political controversies that surround the reconstruction of Byzantine music and the way in which it was performed and the discrepancy between the different ways of annotating it versus the oral tradition that has passed down within the Orthodox Church about how to perform it. And here's where I should say that musicology is the field of Byzantine studies that I have found most esoteric and difficult to access, in part because the discipline and the performative aspect are more closely linked in that field than in any other, right? So you can be a numismatist and a sigillographer and a paleographer and an epigraphist. You're not normally <laughs> forging medieval manuscripts and seals and coins. At least I hope you're not. But those aren't, you know, part of the core skills. It's the study of those things. But in musicology, they're all tied up. And so you, you, you try to enter the field and you very quickly re realize, well, I, wait, I need to know music theory here pretty well. And the best way to do that is to be a musician. And Alexander is both of those things. And so he brings a fascinating dual perspective uh, that is both of the scholar who studies the tradition and also a kind of meta critique of the modern discipline and how it's reconstructed Byzantine music, as well as the performative aspect. And, and he's done more to bring Byzantine music uh, alive for so many people, you know, through Capella Romana and everybody involved in that project. It's fascinating. Okay, three quick notes before we get to the interview. First, you can find the complete recording of that acclamation at the end of the interview. So stay tuned after Alexander and I are done. Um, I have a brief introduction to that recording, and then you can hear the whole thing. It's three or four minutes. Many thanks to Alexander for providing that recording. Second, I'm thinking of organizing a panel discussion episode on historical novels about Byzantium. So if you are an aficionado of that genre, if you've read a number of them, if you are either a historian of Byzantium, so can speak about those novels from that standpoint, or are a professor of literature or fiction or whatever, or at any rate, you have a kind of analytical background, send me a message, tell me you'd be interested, and tell me which novels in particular you would be most interested in discussing. I think that would be a cool episode to have. And third, many thanks again to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, so without any further delay, here is my discussion with Alexander Lingus. Alexander Lingas, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So I got to start with a story. A couple of years ago, when I was starting to think about doing this podcast, the hardest thing for me was to find a musical introduction or anything to put in the introduction. I thought it should be musical. And I started, I Googled Byzantine music and a whole lot of you came up. Sorry about that. But I didn't want to use something in that, you know, range. And so I kept looking and... I found something called a Byzantine scale and a fascinating description said it's like Phrygian dominant, which I thought sounds way cooler <laughs> anyway. And then I thought Byzantine scale, that sounds interesting. Like the song Mr. Lu. Yes. Oh yes. Okay. Okay. So everybody knows that, but I wasn't going to use that. So I did, I, I, to, I typed in Byzantine scale, heavy metal. Oh yes. I That's, hit the jackpot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's a, a guitar instructor, Jake Lizios, I think in, somewhere in Minnesota. And he did this weird thing where he's using the Byzantine scale. Anyway, whatever. Uh, and he had this really interesting tune. So I wrote to him and I said, can I use that for my podcast? I said, of course. And then I had my stepson play it on the electric guitar before, between practicing Metallica and whatever else he was doing. And, and that's how I ended up with this. It works, whatever works. Yeah, it's only 10 seconds anyway. All right. But I actually do listen to your recordings. In fact, the music I have runs mostly from the mid 18th century to the early 20th. 
And a long, long time ago, I used to like choose what I wanted to listen to just based on my mood. Uh-huh. Yeah. But then I, then I had only one mood after a certain point. <laughs> so I just organ, I just play my music chronologically. I just have it playing in rotation mm-hmm. and it takes a semester to get through the whole thing. But anyway, so you are at the very start of it. All right. Because I've got some medieval stuff anyway. All right. Good. Good. All right. Enough about me. Let's talk about actual Byzantine music, <laughs> not what I find online. So when we talk about Byzantine music, we mostly mean ecclesiastical music. Um, and I want to talk a, a little bit about the controversies about that that you've written about. Uh, but before we do that, is there anything that we can say about Byzantine secular music? Like, do we know anything at all? Yeah, we know a fair amount about what instruments were used. Um, we there's um, a scholar in at the University of Athens who's published a very thick book about it. Uh, we know about organs. We know about uh, a lot of things. The problem is they didn't write down their secular music, mm. so uh, that's that's the problem. And the only exceptions are um, acclamations. So we've got some of those because those were incorporated into the church services. So we've got nice little bits, trumpet-like fanfares for voices uh, proclaiming, you know, the emperors and telling them to live a long time. I remember reading in Mark Lauksterman's book on poetry, he has the, there's this chant or something poem for the birthday, I think, of the Emperor Leo VI. And it says to be sung to the tune of and it gives the title of some some song or something. I thought that was so interesting that they would have their own repertoires that you would. Oh, I sing it like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was very common. I mean, that's that's the way you can get through a lot of texts by having singers memorize a kind of more confined repertory. So, I mean, that's even true of like the modern Orthodox service books, because uh, there's something like 50,000 hymns in the published service books. But the actual number that you have to memorize to get through the services on a regular basis is much smaller because it's only the really big feasts that tend to have original tunes. That would make sense. Presumably the court had its own repertoire. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's some of the same people who, you know, worked both sides of the street, very much in some ways like Western medieval and Renaissance things that that some of those singers, they might be called to sing for um, the, the emperors as they are on certain occasions, Christmas. And so we know from the, the Book of Ceremonies that uh, they might actually sing some hymns as well as some acclamations. And then these people would presumably, you know, work the other side of the street as well and, you know, sing other things at other times. Do you think those court songs might have been accompanied by music or possibly even organ? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, we know that they used instruments at the court. Um, and the thing is, they just don't seem to have used them in church, which was the kind of older practice. Yeah. OK, so let's turn to the type of music that we can access a little bit better, which is ecclesiastical music. So what are our sources for that? How do we know about it? Well, we've got sources that um, depends what you want to call a a source. Uh, If you want to talk about manuscripts that have notation that we can tell pretty much what the sequence of pitches are, that goes back to um, sort of the the late 11th century, uh, 11th, 12th century. And and we've got ones that go back another 150, 200 years uh, that assume that people already knew the tunes, but they give you kind of sketches of what some of the melodic gestures are. It's very similar, actually, to to Western chant. The earliest Gregorian chant doesn't also tell us what the sequence of pitches are. And both uh, Byzantine and uh, Gregorian chant developed systems, different ones, for how to remind people of melodies they still largely used by by ear. So, but we have thousands of uh, manuscripts. Um, a couple of scholars, Kenneth Levy and uh, Christian Trulsgaard, uh, in their article in the New Grove Dictionary on Byzantine chant, uh, they estimate 10% of surviving medieval Byzantine manuscripts contain melodic notation. Wait, what? Yeah. So they say of the they of the twelve to fifteen thousand manuscripts from before fourteen fifty three, something like ten percent of them contain melodic notation. Wow. And then there are other systems. There was a system that was used for reading, so-called lectionary or ecphonetic notation, that was used really it seems from the the post iconoclastic period up through around the time of the 13th, 14th century, and that kind of died out. That also, it was a kind of shorthand to remind people of some formulas that they would use when reading. Now it's a purely oral tradition, though 
canters as they learn from each other, they will still more or less do the same thing when doing a reading, but they used to have a more systematized form of that. And then there are papyri and other kind of proto notation systems that go back to the, to the Egyptian desert. So, you know, stuff going way back, you know, sixth century. Do these manuscripts correlate musical notation with the lyrics, if you will? Yeah, so so it's so what essentially you have one line for the text and one line for the music abo uh, above it. Okay. So this question just occurred to me, and it might sound really sort of wild or irrelevant, but does this 11th century presumably what is spoken or chanted is all in what we would call modern Greek pronunciation of Greek, right? Yeah, pretty much so. And I mean, we can even tell that a little bit earlier because of the way that um, some things got written into Latin. We've got some cases of some, some chants that made their way into Latin repertories in southern Italy and the phonetics that they use for it. And also, uh, also in Charlemagne's court up yeah. further north, too. Uh, and it's pretty much modern Greek pronunciation. Okay. Yeah, I asked that because the 11th century is, I think, the last time that we hear of Ypsilon being pronounced um, differently, like as a long vowel by mm -hmm. some people at the court, I think, only. Like it might have been some sort of court affectation. I don't know if that yeah. would have Well, even today, I mean, if it's like Latin, there are different versions of, of Latin. So if you listen to, to Germans sing German yeah. Latin, they will, they will sing, of course, the Greek word, kyrieleison is kyrieleison, and yes, so yes. on. And <laughs> Yes, completely different from Italian Latin. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I understand from reading your articles uh, that there has been quite a bit of controversy about how to render uh, Byzantine musical notation into a modern form. And this became quite controversial from the early part of the 20th century onward. So what are the main camps uh, here and where are they coming from such that they ended up with such different approaches to, you know, how to signify, you know, what's being chanted and so forth? Well, the root issue is that of continuity. It's how do you understand the music that's used today in the kind of mainstream tradition of chant of the Greek Orthodox Church and those closely associated with those traditions, so like Romania, Bulgaria, the, the, the Arabs in the, in the Middle East. What is that music? Uh, because we're singing the texts that were written, you know, but we know the, the great hymnographers, John of Damascus and so on, all these people, we sing their texts. So the question is, how old is the music? And at one end of the spectrum, there are people who say that the music that is being sung today is as old as the texts. It, and the other end of the spectrum are people who say the music that is sung today has nothing to do with what was done in the past. And, and it all got mixed up with cultural politics because then you got people who started from uh, looking for the origins of these traditions, especially Western scholars, and they would uh, you know, walk in and to a modern Greek Orthodox church and hear someone singing in a style that did not sound to them like Rossini or Haydn or any of those things. And it's, you know, it's this dreaded you know, oriental decadence that they, right. is what they heard. And, and so sometimes they speak very rudely about uh, the, the type of singing. So how do, you, how do you resolve that? There's this vast sonic gap between the received ways of singing and performing music in Western Europe and those uh, that continued in the, in the East. And so again, the, the, the two ends of the spectrum are, uh, one has, we're doing exactly what they did in the 10th or 5th century or whenever. Another is it has nothing to do, it was all corrupted by dreaded Oriental influence. And then there are people in between who think, well, there was some kind of logical you know, development and how that worked out uh, is the big question. Presumably the people who represent received practice in the Orthodox tradition, would point to continuity of practice mm -hmm. and treat what they have received, even if it's only like oral tradition or a tradition of instruction or apprenticeship, you know, over the centuries, as itself being yet another source for Byzantine music, right? A different kind of source indirectly transmitted, but nevertheless still valid to be put mm -hmm. alongside the manuscripts that you just mentioned. Is that right? No, very much so. And, and then um, that's, I think that's part of the, the core of the argument that oral tradition was the true bearer of the, the sound of, and how to interpret those old manuscripts. And then you had essentially a kind of um, 
something analogous to biblical criticism and so on, a kind of urtext mentality. You're looking for the original. You're going to reconstruct things from the earliest possible sources. And that was a, a sort of movement that happened in Western music. I mean, Gregorian chant also developed naturally over the centuries, although it, at the Council of Trent, where they had the, the, the Counter-Reformation, they went back and they revised some of the service books, cut out some of the things that had happened in the Middle Ages and came up with standard service books at the end of the Renaissance for the Catholic Church. They thought about doing it for music, but they never got around to it. And so on through the 19th century, what you had were a series of highly regional localized versions of descendants of Gregorian and other types of chant. And it was, but in the 19th century, though, there was this big move back to try to recover the Middle Ages and, uh, you know, after the Napoleonic Wars and all the, the, the Enlightenment going off in what some people thought was the wrong direction. Uh, so that, uh, so those people then who wanted to rehabilitate the Middle Ages in the West, one of the things what they wanted to do is bring back the original Gregorian chant, just like you would do with biblical criticism, find the original version of a text and apply that sort of thing to music. And that's what created the style of chant that we normally hear now, that whole kind of light and, and you know, gloria in that sort of, you know, light flowing yeah. thing. Uh, that's an invention of late 19th century French romanticism, a way of singing melodies from the Middle Ages that were had been not been sung for many centuries and were resurrected by modern scholars. And so then they look at the East, <laughs> And they say, oh, well, um, you know, <laughs> those people really sound out to lunch, you know, and, <laughs> and we know now that we've, we are, we've scientifically proven that Gregorian chant really was like this. So, yeah. you know, if we're going to find the true sibling, it has to be more like the Gregorian chant that we've just reconstructed. <laughs> right. At the end of one of your uh, articles, you mentioned that there was a, a, a conductor, a performer on the, on the Gregorian chant side of things recently, I think in France, who has tried to adjust and correct for the 19th century reinvention. Wow, what was his name? Um, Marcel Perez. Yes. Yeah, with the Ensemble Garam. I mean, the thing is, there were dissenting voices all the way along. There was a German scholar called Peter Wagner, who you know, thought that some of the rhythmic ideas uh, were, were not uh, accurate. And there were even people, there were experiments, people in, in France who tried to get, uh, you know, Armenian singers to try sing Gregorian chant. And there were, there were different competing models. But one of the things that the restoration of Gregorian chant of the monks of Salem was so successful because it spoke to the cultural moment, uh, that the kind of rhythmic ideas of free rhythm and everything else, it's not coincidental that those fit with all sorts of other things that were happening in contemporary music, a move to kind of objectivity and all that sort of stuff. And people like Stravinsky, I mean, the cultural historians have pointed this thing out a again. And then they turn to the East and then see something that they don't recognize at all and except as the Oriental. They yeah. hear different scales, different vocal production, and therefore they assume that must have been corrupted by Turkish, Arab, Persian, whatever influence. Yeah, yeah. I want to come to this issue of uh, Eastern influence and corruption. But first, I just wanted to note that I, after I read your article, I went and I looked uh, uh, on YouTube for some recordings by uh, Marcel Perez. And, and um, I found them, they, they sound quite different from the CDs of Gregorian chant that I had in my you sequence. Bet. Um, and they sounded, I got to say, and I'm, no, I'm no expert, obviously, um, they sounded much closer uh, to what I would call Byzantine music yep. than, than I expected. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's the thing. You can take medieval Western music, and because we have no recordings from the Middle Ages, we have to make all sorts of uh, assumptions or, or decisions, actually, phrase it more positively, because uh, a textual scholar can make an addition with footnotes and everything else and say, well, maybe it's this, maybe that, or this reading, whatever. But the thing is, if you're going to get up and perform it, you have to choose and yeah. you have to do something. And um, But no, there is a, a minority of people out there who uh, think that, no, actually, probably it was something more like a, a, a pan-Mediterranean way of singing, descending out of the uh, from the uh, united cultural region of the late Roman Empire, which stretched all the way from from Spain to the Middle East, yeah. uh, and that that you know Christianity being an Eastern religion and all these other things, so that that makes more sense. Actually, there's a scholar from. Um, University of Toronto, uh, Timothy McGee published a thin little book called The Sound of Medieval Song. 
And uh, he makes this, that's the case he makes. He says that the Gregorian chant is originally and uh, a Mediterranean style of music that went north. And actually, I mean, there's, there's a whole nother story there because um, the first manuscripts we get of chant in the West with notation come from the north. It was an effort, part of Charlemagne's efforts, just like he built the chapel at Aachen. And, you know, he was sort of, again, you know, sort of yet one more new Rome, right, to, yes. to, to build uh, there that he wanted Roman music. He imported the Roman rite and imposed it throughout his kingdom. And he brought cantors up to the north and we and they started to write it down there and they wrote in great detail and we also have wonderful stories back and forth from romans and frankish uh views of this so on the one hand we've got john the deacon the the, the roman says that the 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 franks their tongues were so thick they couldn't just uh, interpret the music properly they just couldn't get yeah. the subtleties of it and then we get notcarbabalus who who's writing you know uh his his uh, story of how charlemagne did everything and said that oh it was those deceitful spiteful greeks and romans you know who went and taught as badly as they could and charlemagne had to keep going back to the source so there was obviously some kind of you know cultural gap then in the ninth century in the West as well of having this style of music, which was Mediterranean in origin and making it go north. So one of the possible ways of resolving this is then to say, well, actually, maybe it's Western music that in some ways has gone further off. I mean, it, it, this one you then tie into oral traditions, ethnomusicology and all that sort of stuff. But it's a logical solution. And one of the things Perez did, he, he started off by looking at old Roman chant, which is another version of the Roman repertory. Uh, a lot of the same texts, uh, clearly some versions of the same tunes that are Gregorian chant, but this was the music for the city of Rome itself. And it exists in a small number of manuscripts because Gregorian chant, this northern version of it, eventually suppressed all the local chants of Italy except for Milan. Um, uh, the Ambrosian rite got held out to the present day, but there were there was a Beneventan rite. There were there were other uh, local things, and they were eventually all replaced by Frankish chant. Uh, mm. And so, but this old Roman chant, it when it has some of the same melodies, it writes them out in a kind of different way. So one of the big things that Western scholars have been wondering, well, how does that relate to things like oral tradition? Because some of the early scholars who looked at old Roman chants said, you know, this looks decadent to us. Uh, it looks more <laughs> oriental uh, because instead of um, singing, you have a melody that goes, I can't remember exactly, but it had they, the old Roman versions um, have lots of little curlicues to them. Here's another one, um, if I can think. Alleluia. Gregorian version, old Roman version. Alleluia. You know, it's, they just they just right. have, have these these curlicues that go one after the other. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the big questions too is that that it's only really modern westerners with modern western classical music who bother to write out everything, everything. that they do i mean like jazz players don't do it if a jazz chart has a very just skeleton of what the people actually play um people in pop music and other things rarely use notation unless they're writing things out for arrangements for for orchestra or something like this so one of the things too that even in the west we know and even like through baroque music through handel's time and everything else that that performers did a lot. So one of these questions is, again, back to your original one, what is the relationship between what's written and what the people actually performed? So the, um, the traditionalists in the Orthodox world then have tended to say that the oral tradition was the bearer of all those things. Yeah. Um, but the problem is when you look, start looking closely at some of those old manuscripts, the outlines of the melody are, are different from the ones we use today. So you then have to start doing some gymnastics to uh, explain, well, why do they look so different? Yeah, but it's not like there was some moment in, I don't know, the 18th or 19th century when there was some overhaul of the tradition of performance in the Orthodox Church, right? This was some gradual evolution, right? Yeah, but there was a major notational reform at the beginning of the 19th century. Ah, and there was a gradual change that seemed to happen in the kind of Ottoman 
cultural sphere yeah. uh, that that there was a, a gradual emergence of some new styles, some new ways of composing things, and and so this this uh, method of uh, the, 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 it's called the, the new method of Byzantine notation uh, or of ecclesiastical psalmody. I mean, of course, nobody used the word Byzantine until the end of the 19th century anyway. Right. But there was an effort to add some things into the notation that it didn't used to have. The old medieval notation, which the one that would show you the sequence of, of, of pitches, the one that was in use from uh, the 11th end of the 11th century or whatever, 12th century, to the beginning of the 19th, it didn't have any way of showing you sharps and flats exactly. It had ways of showing you exactly how to lengthen a beat. So between the difference between, you know, one beat da, you know, da, 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 and da, da, da. It could do that, but what it couldn't show you is subdivision. It couldn't show you or any, you know, divisions yeah. of the basic beat. And so those characters were introduced in the 19th century as part of this reform, which happened actually in the same decade that the Armenians also reformed their notation in, in Constantinople. But then the question was, so, so in the modern uh, view then, the modern traditionalist view is that the transcriptions that were made by those reformers uh, of older repertory, that's the only way into that old repertory. So uh, the way that Hurmuzios, Hartofilax, Hurmuzios, the archivist, the way he transcribed a 15th century chant, that's the way it was sung in the 15th century. Um, and there's some problems with that <laughs> because in most cases, Hurmuzios transcribed uh, melodies from the 15th century at about four times as long as they look on the paper. As a result, there really aren't enough hours in the day to do the services <laughs> if you're going to do them in that in those pretty length versions yeah so so then then the gymnastics are well um the the real versions that they did they just kept them oral they only wrote down the long ones yeah but, but the notate uh, and this was something even though within the tradition there were people there was a, a, a cantor at the at the patriarchate in constantinople named marcos vasiliu who said Come on, guys, that doesn't make sense. They, do you think they, they could write it down and they you could. And so he actually made some pioneering transcriptions uh, in the first decade of the uh, 20th century that are kind of very much like some of the things that are emerging now in the consensus of some of the modern scholars who find ways of negotiating between the witness of the oral tradition and uh, the what's in the manuscripts. Right. So it sounds like both sides in this controversy you know, have to, as we say, you know, put some water in their wine. I mean, it's not a case of consistent and faithful, you know, tradition uh, conveying all of the elements of both performance and notation, or on the other hand of some oriental, they actually call it Turkish influence, right? Like, oh, yeah, Turk, yeah, Turkish influence, uh, Arabo-Persian, or, right. you know, the, or, or the Orient, in, in English, they would use the word Orient sometimes. And, 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 in what contexts did they imagine that, you know, Oriental influences could change the way Orthodox, you know, liturgy was performed? Uh, I think it's just being the surrounding culture um, that once they kind of yeah once they lost touch of with the with the West and and then got conquered by the Ottomans. So they, yeah. um, there is something true that um, certainly the the infrastructure for church music. Uh, decayed during the later years of, of the empire, at least at its height. I mean, it was something where you had uh, people on staff uh, at places like Hagia Sophia and its other churches you know, that would put any English cathedral tradition of paid singers to shame. Uh, yeah. that, I mean, it was, it was just, but, but very similar in some ways in that you had people who were on staff to sing on a two round rotation of a week rotation of services um, and, you know, with high, you know, gradations of what they were doing and elite soloists and choirs and everything else. And um, in some ways, that whole establishment never really recovered from uh, the Fourth Crusade. Oh, yeah. um, and, and there was something else that happened, too, is that you also had the elite musical cultures of East and West start to diverge around that time, too, that uh, the West, the elite music becomes polyphony, writing music in multiple parts, whereas in the East, the composers uh, begin to cultivate a style, sort of a more horizontal style uh, of, of creating, um, you know, still one line of music, but very, very sophisticated compositions lasting 10, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, no, I really liked how you traced 
the history of sort of mutual reactions to each other's music on West and on the part of West and East. And you, you just go through medieval and, and Byzantine sources where you talk about them attending each other's services and or hearing choirs and not being put off by how alien or foreign it sounded. Um, and in particular, you know, there's this wonderful passage um, regarding, uh, I think it's uh, Louis the seventh uh, during the, um, this is the second crusade when they pass through Constantinople and Manuel Comnenus puts on the whole, you know, reception and event and, and the French court attends. I think, is it, um, it would have been remarkably appropriate, right? If it was in, in honor of St. Dionysius. Saint Denis. Yeah, right? well, I mean, it's, but Saint Denis in Paris, they, they continued doing a Greek version of the Roman Mass up and through the time of, of Louis the Fourteenth. Yeah. I mean, they, they, there was that they had that tradition that they right. picked up along the ways from the Carolingian era. So no, they were they were conscious of each other's music, and the fact that that even again on the part of the problem too is also music history textbooks because music history Western music history textbooks tend to present the history of music as a kind of of technological story. So, you know, once upon a time, there were people who just sang melodies and then then they wrote it down. And then once a, then somebody actually decided, oh, look, you could have two parts that move kind of together in parallel and that, wow, we're on the way to Beethoven now, <laughs> you know, and then and, and then, you know, and, and, and Wagner and Schoenberg and everything else that that it's a story of always the most advanced techniques. But one of the things that um, especially if you're looking at the, the Middle Ages and that uh, before the invention of the printing press, which then began to democratize this elite style in the West of writing music in multiple parts, that if there was music in multiple parts, most of it was still improvised. I mean, actually, even all the way through the early Renaissance, the singers, some of these same people who did, uh, you know, were, were like people like uh, Ockagum or Josquin, these these great uh, late medieval composers from northwest of Europe, people like Dufay, who then ended up as as far as Patris, he ends up going um, with with the Latins. But part of their basic training was to improvise music in parts as well. And so the, it's those simpler styles of improvised polyphony based on chants that were really, you know, statistically speaking, and then just normal music you know, normal like songs without other without complex multiple parts uh, that would statistically have been the norm. So again, we, we tend to, uh, music historians of, of Western medieval music, the, the careful ones are, you know, much clearer about this these days. But if you're teaching music 101, you know, the narrative is still again, you know, you know, once somebody decides to, you know, find some way of putting two parts together, then you always have to follow the next most complex way of doing so. So then you get, you know, Notre Dame Organum and, and yeah. then you get Macho and then you get Palestrina and Bach and so on. Yes, yes. Uh, inevitably leading to the Beatles or something. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, you probably know this, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's a slightly similar situation that we find ourselves in with uh, a lot um, philological texts, even literary texts from Byzantium, especially orations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's some philologists who believe that the text as we have it is only a part of the performance and it leaves out like these texts were meant to be recited in ways that I don't want to say musically, but in a, you know, with a certain kind of performativity that we simply have no notation of in the manuscripts and reading the text like we do cold is pretty much the same as reading a score, but not actually ever hearing the piece. Yeah, yeah, no, just consider things like, you know, African-American preachers and so on. I mean, the, right. the, you yeah. want to talk about the, about the musicality of it. And and even one one of the things that survives that way is the the highly rhetorical way that people will read on Easter the the homily attributed to, to Saint John Chrysostom with the with the epicranthes and so on uh, you know he is vexed or angered or whatever and uh, that 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 kind of responsorial thing that, that it gets going sometimes and actually one of the strangest experiences I ever had was. I was uh, singing uh, for, for Easter and we had a visiting priest, a very um, eminent priest, Father uh, uh, Leon Condos, who um, was actually got his uh, DPhil at Oxford and everything. And, 
and he decided to read that homily in good Oxonian style, you know, <laughs> which which the, the, the whole congregation were there entirely befuddled by the whole experience because they wanted to shout back yeah. the refrains. <laughs> and instead it was spare, you know. <laughs> so it was, yeah, clash of cultures there. But it, but it makes a huge difference. It does. It does, really. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't surprised when... I mean, this was all new to me. I, I have to say, I did not know about these controversies, but I wasn't surprised to see that some Western scholars in the early 20th century decided how Byzantine Orthodox music sh shall be written um, and instructed the benighted natives on how this was supposed to be done, you know, and their traditions were sort of way, way off. Um, it, there, there is a little imperialism there that, you know, I couldn't get away from it. But at the same time, that sort of orthodox insistence on this is how we've been doing it. And, you know, it has never changed and it never shall. And yeah, yeah so that OK, all things change. Yeah, uh, but there so, are lots of dynamics uh, internally, too. Like my grandmother was from the Ionian Islands, so from Kerkira. And so she couldn't stand Byzantine music right. uh, because so she very much had the narrative that thanks to them being under the Venetians, they actually preserved real church music yes. uh, and and so that you know what happened on the mainland that was all yeah she bought into the that was the they the ottomans they destroyed it all and so there were also these dynamics in the modern greek state uh, as to are we eastern are we western and also the communities in in constantinople and smyrna and so on with still within the ottoman empire so they were having those debates as well where do we place ourselves and you know in in some ways the the greek state was if it hadn't been for the exchange of populations, I wonder sometimes whether musically they might have ended up more like Serbia, uh, that, that they were heading towards a kind of cultural synthesis that might have, where they were dominated more by the Western European influences because all the early composers had come from the Ionian Islands. And then you got people who got, yeah, yeah. were trained in Germany. And then you have Rebetica and all these things coming up precisely because people are moved over and, and upset the cultural balance. And it never really kind of finds a new equilibrium until the sort of 1970s and, and so on. Let's talk about that new equilibrium, because I'm wondering, so when all is said and done, and, and it seems that these theoretical discussions are fairly well advanced by now, and that at least I, I got a sense from your writings that we kind of know the terrain. Mm -hmm. Has anything changed in the, say, in the training of Orthodox cantors today, or has, is there some sort of middle ground that's emerged? Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, one of the things that's happened, there's been a, a massive revival of the chanting tradition since the 1970s. Westernized versions of chant that were very popular, and they had a strong influence on the United States because of when most of the immigrants came over. Uh, but oh. then they kind of had their heyday and they, they started to fade out in Greece by the, by the 1970s. And so you had a Along with the revival of monasticism, you know, Malathos was almost empty in the early 70s, and then it refilled up. So now, and, and with the, you know, paradosiaka, various sorts, traditional music more generally, that, that so Byzantine chant has been part of that phenomenon too, that it's, it's been a part of the kind of re reclamation of the Romaic heritage in, in Greece. So I think that what's happened now is that you have a lot more people who are actually have a systematic education in it. There was a curriculum that was put in early in the 20th century by Konstantinos Ptachos, who was sent by the Patriarchate to Athens, to the Athens Conservatory, to found a chant program, five-year certificate program. The outlines of that same program are still used today, but the number of people getting their certificates now is, is vastly larger, I'm sure. And, and you, uh, so there's just been uh, a lot more opportunities to learn it, there are more choirs. And actually, that's one of the things that's really changed. It's the recovery of a choral discipline, because we know from the Middle Ages that Byzantine music was most of the time it was choral music. I mean, at least certainly in the larger monasteries and everything else, we have all the rubrics telling how things would be done. Um, and then uh, with the, the urban churches all losing their choral foundations, monasteries kind of having up and down, but then monasteries, many of them became like on Athos, became idiorhythmic as well. So where each, where instead of having a central rule with an abbot who can tell people yeah. to go sing in the choir, yeah. that instead you have people kind of doing their own things. So that what was originally much more of a choral art became more of a soloist art through the years. 
and that what's happened then in modern times is that you have had people like uh, uh, Grigorios Stathis at the University of Athens, Likurgos Angelopoulos and others founding choirs to uh, sing as a choir and recover a choral discipline of how everyone's going to do all these things together. And they've also been responsible for recovering a lot of this older repertory. So even if it's in the transcriptions from the 19th century composer, uh, from the 19th century uh, reformers, I mean, the, these people like uh, these reformers made volume after volume of transcriptions of older repertory, but nobody was singing it other than, you know, a few things here and there, maybe on an all night vigil on Monathos where they need to provide 12 hours of services, but mm -hmm. because the things were pastorally useless, you know, in, yeah. in a, in a, but then the modern concert has proved to be a wonderful place for such things. Yeah, you want to do a, a, a piece on um, uh, vocables, you know, the so-called nonsense syllables, ananeterianem, that's last 30 minutes. The Megaro Musikis is a great place for that because it's yeah. the same length as, a, as an adagio of a symphony, you yeah. know? So that's one of the things that's really happened is that there's been a, a kind of systematization of pedagogy, of... Um, uh, of uh, recovery of choral discipline, all these other things. And within that, then you find a, a kind of a spectrum of opinion. There are some people who are some purists of their own think who think that these choirs, they are neo-Byzantine choirs. And, and it's kind of because the true art is a soloist art. And you find that uh, idea out there. Uh, you find other people who are not threatened at all by the idea that maybe the tunes were different in the Middle Ages. Maybe even if, if like we, we sing today, um, for the beginning of the Christmas canon of Cosmos of Jerusalem. And maybe in the Middle Ages they sang <laughs> you know, so what? <laughs> they're both D minor scales, you know, whatever. Uh, and and uh, that they're not, you know, threatened. That, well, that's nice too. <laughs> so I think there is a kind of division out there now between, uh, like one of the people who works very carefully, uh, closely with my ensemble, Capella Roman is, is um, Ioanni Sarvanitis, uh, did a two volume doctoral thesis on, for the Ionian University on uh, the interpretation of rhythm in medieval Byzantine notation. So he's deeply into these sources. And he's a, one of the people who believes strongly that, yeah, you can sing up through about the 15th century. What you see is what you get, more or less. You have to make some decisions about rhythm, sharps and flats, but, um, but it works. Uh, somehow, and the, and then we have change over time, and some tunes changed a little, some not very much at all. Uh, I mean, like one that changed almost not at all is the the uh, the prologue for Romanus's Christmas Contagion, I Parthenosimeron, the earliest manuscript that we have a, a, a short melody for it is from the 13th century. It's today in Saint Petersburg, and it's it's. Something like that. And the modern melodies, it's exactly the same tune. One has a couple more ornaments on right. a couple notes. But that's a tune that hasn't changed, you know, and it was one that was one of those ones that was rarely written down. Um, if you read some older Western scholarship or scholar, they, they don't uh, like Egon Veles, he thinks that uh, those syllabic melodies, those short melodies, don't survive for that repertory. But in fact, they have been found. It's just that some people wrote them down very rarely because they were used so frequently that most people learn them by ear as they still do today. Yeah. Uh, and so, but in those cases where we do, that's one where it's pretty much the same tune for the last seven centuries. So wow. again, there is lots of evidence for continuity. And there's some other cases where things have changed some, somewhere they've changed a bit more. I mean, at least that's my position. There are others who would say, no, 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 it's, you know, it's, it's been the same all time. But I, anyway, there we are. Yeah. So you mentioned Capella Romana. So where does that group fit in? Uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the, the conception behind it. Well, the, the original conception was to get a group of my friends together to sing some music that you know ah, I, I wouldn't get a chance to hear otherwise and to do a fundraiser for the, um, the Greek Orthodox Cathedral in San Francisco, where I was, I was uh, uh, writing my doctoral thesis at the time. I was singing there as the assistant cantor, and the previous building had been uh, demolished as a result of the Loma Prieta earthquake. So they were starting to raise funds. And as a, a, a student, you know, I can't give them a million dollars for the building fund, but I can get my friends together to do a benefit concert. Sure. And we did it and it was sort of orthodox music ancient and modern so we did some medieval chant and we did some things by you know some Stravinsky and other things modern composers 
And uh, we thought, oh, that sort of worked. So um, let's do a season next year. And, uh, and then it just kind of kept going. I didn't know it started like that. Wow. For the audience who hasn't looked into it, so I strongly recommend that you check out Capella Romana. I mean, you've done a number of recordings. I use them in class. And, uh, you know, it's gone from bringing a, a small CD player <laughs> to now that our, all our classrooms are outfitted with you know, all these high-tech speaker systems that can really immerse the entire class in your chanting. I do that every semester I teach, every time I teach Byzantine civilization. Uh, do they have Atmos, though? That's the, are, are the um, uh, Lost Voices of Hagia Sophia. We recorded that in in was it seven point whatever multi-channel sound. So if it's it's actually set up. So if you've got a, like a, a full theater style system with with height um, speakers as well, yeah, it's 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 pretty impressive. We we uh, we mixed that at uh, Skywalker Studios. <laughs> <All places. laughs> in the cantina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, it's a, but it was it was we were the first time you know people are coming around used to movie scores and the like and sort of sort of oh Atmos you know that that's usually only time they would have those sort of yeah. multi-channel things uh, set up and they said you know no no we're doing it for chant really oh <laughs> and you performed like all over the world right or uh, yeah, in non-pandemic conditions, yes. Yes, yeah, sure, sure, obviously. Yeah, no, no, we were, we were actually are we were supposed to be all sorts of places in the yeah. in the spring, uh, but we're looking forward uh, to going back to some places, some uh, of the uh, various festivals and so on have just postponed their programs. So we're hoping to bring the Lost Voices of Hagia Sophia to the Utrecht Early Music Festival this coming September. Well, uh, um, Alexander. I was very happy to to have this conversation with you and to read your work. And also I would recommend to the audience to check out your recordings. In addition to that one, which other ones? So if you were to highlight two recordings. Oh gosh. Um, depends what you like. If you, if um, we, we also do uh, Slavonic things. So one of uh, the things that we've done not too long ago was the uh, Maximilian Steinberg's Passion Week, which was the last major work of sacred music composed. Um, the composer wrote it for what used to be the St. Petersburg Imperial Capella, which, uh, and he wrote it for them during the communist period. And about three weeks before they were supposed to start doing it, they were told no new sacred music could be performed. Oh. So we ended up doing the premiere uh, in, ah. in Portland. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> after oh, yeah. all, after all those years, yeah. So, so it's it's a fantastic piece, and it's in the tradition of the Rachmaninoff vigil. So we we absolutely beautiful, based on Znamini chants. And so, if you want to see the other end of the spectrum of what we do, that uh, here's a little of. Um, but there's plenty of Byzantine stuff too. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for for joining us. My pleasure. So that was my conversation with Alexander Lingus. In retrospect, Alexander wanted to make the following correction that in the excitement of the conversation, he blurred the dates when intervallically precise diastematic pneumatic notation appeared in East and West, 11th century in the Latin West, 12th in the Greek East, for the chant geeks out there who understand what that means. We promised you a musical treat, and here it is. But first, I want to tell you what it is. It is an imperial acclamation. What does that mean? So there were a number of contexts where an emperor would appear in public or before the court and would be acclaimed. That is, they would chant various things, praising the emperor, wishing him a long life, um, and so forth. This could happen at the Hippodrome or in Hagia Sophia or at the court or in a number of public settings. One of the more spectacular acclamations would have taken place at a type of ceremony or reception called a prokipsis, uh, which was a very carefully orchestrated and choreographed event where the emperor would appear probably on an elevated stage. You know, these curtains would probably be pulled back. There, there was a lighting effect, so a flash of light, the emperor would appear, and then there would be acclamations. It was all sort of very designed to be impressive on anybody who was there. What you're about to hear are the acclamations for a Christmas prokipsis. It survives in a manuscript with musical notation written by Ioannis Plusiadinos um, in the 
1469, I believe. Uh, this was a, an intellectual from Crete. Um, he was involved in the theological and ecclesiastical controversies of his age, but he also wrote music, um, church music, and he composed this acclamation for the Emperor John VIII, uh, Paleologos, so the second to last Byzantine emperor. So I'm going to read the lyrics to you in advance so that you know what they're saying. They alternate between the protopsaltis, or the cantor, and the chorus, the laos, the people who are assembled there. So I'll read them in English first and then in Greek. Many years to the kings. This is repeated a number of times. To John, the most devout king and emperor of the Romans, Paleologos, and Maria, the most devout Augusta, many years. This is sung by the cantor, then repeated by the people. God make your holy kingdom last for many years. And in Greek, Polata etiton vasileon, Ioannu tu evsevestatu vasileos ke aftokratoros Romeon tu paleologu ke Marias tis evsevestatis Augustis polata eti. Polychronion piise o Theos tin Agia vasilia imon is polata eti. And here it is, performed by Capella Romana. <laughs> 